Hey, good morning, Veritas. Good morning to everybody. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't do a better introduction to what we're about to look at in Romans 6 than what James already led us through. I'm, I'm actually pretty giddy, pretty excited about opening Romans 6, 7, and 8 with you guys over the next few weeks because it is, um, I don't know, maybe the most impactful chunk of the Bible, one of the most quickly applicable, both both to ponder, but actually to live out just the, yeah, the, the, the power of the gospel in Romans 6, 7, and 8 that we're going to be looking at over these next weeks is uh, pretty incomparable. So um, there's a lot of good news here today, all right? I, I hope that you're leaning in. I hope that even, as James was talking about, even the singing, our, our singing to one another and singing to, to our own hearts has prepared you to really have some good soil for the for the gospel to land on today. So uh, if you've got your Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Romans chapter 6. What I um, want to do, though, just as we start this series, is do, like, seriously, like a three-minute, like, flyover of the first five chapters, because I I want chapter 6 to make the most sense to us as we get there. So um, even though we'll land in Romans 6, flip back to Romans chapter 1 just for a moment, because even in this introductory chapter, chapter one, he, he really sets the stage for what is the gospel and what's he going to spend the next, you know, many chapters unpacking. If you look down at Romans 1 verse 16, it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now there he's, he's actually talking about like sequentially. In other words, this good news, this gospel is going to land on this Jewish community. Those that have been studying the Old Testament and waiting for this day for the Messiah to come, for Jesus to come, boom, it's going to start there. But it's going to keep rippling out all the way to Iowa. You know, at one point it's going to get all the way to Iowa. And, and he's saying, oh, this, this is really just powerful good news to just everybody. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, this righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by rules. The righteous are going to live by duty and obligation and works, right? No, the, the righteous are going to live by faith, that somehow this faith, believing, trusting in Jesus is going to infuse us with power and, and, and it's going to be, it's just going to kind of explode into our lives far more than just preparing us for someday when we die. Um, the, this faith is going to rock our worlds right, right here, right now. Um, Eugene Peterson uh, wrote uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 in his own way in the message. I want to read this to us. This is the way it says in, in that translation. It's news I'm most proud to proclaim. This extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts him, starting with Jews and then right on to everyone else. God's way of putting people right shows up in the acts of faith, confirming what Scripture said all along. The person in right standing before God, by trusting Him, really lives. The reason I like this is because I think you see even more what Paul's doing in these couple of verses. He's saying, yeah, the Messiah has come to rescue us, and so that's really good news for someday when we die and stand before God. That's that's really good news for that for sure. But man, it, it doesn't start then. It starts right here, right now. Like, we're the people, you know, through our acts of faith, show that we actually do believe, and, and now we really know what it is to live 
Trusting him, we really live. So um, that's the unfolding, the, like the introduction of, of the gospel. But what he does, if you go with me to chapter 3, verse 19, the good news actually starts by forcing us to recognize the bad news, right? There's some really bad news that preps us for the good news. So in other words, like if, if uh, all of a sudden you uh, are told that you've got a uh, an illness, you know, something that's going to take your life, that's really bad news. But if it's quickly followed by, oh, but we have the cure, we know how to get rid of that, and then, oh, man, the good news is even more extraordinary, right? It's even greater news. And so that's, that's what happens. He wants us to face the reality of where we're at. So in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Now he says a whole lot more before he gets to this one. But now what we've got is the scene where you're standing in front of the court, you're standing in front of the judge, and you know that he's got you dead to rights. You know for sure the evidence is packed, there you are, and the only thing you can do is put your hand over your mouth and are like, guilty, I got nothing. I can't scream for justice. If I get justice, I, I'm out of here, right? If I, dead to rights. I'm just putting my hand over my mouth, and I'm just going to receive it because I've got no excuse, nothing. And it's not just those guys next door. It's not just the people. Around. No, that's you. You and I stand before God, our hands over our mouth, just subject to God's judgment. But seeing that, that judge also happens to be the one that wants desperately to rescue us. And so you get to Romans 3, 22. That's where this righteousness of God kicks in that he talked about back in chapter one. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who just believe. There's no distinction. Yes, all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, like radically short of the glory of God. But they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Christ sees us there, totally guilty, condemned, hands over our mouth, and he steps in on our behalf. He rescues us out of that condemnation. And so we have, just by believing that Jesus would do that, that's, that's, all we, that's our ticket. That's, that's, our, that's our pass to not have to receive that condemnation. And that forgiveness is so complete. Now I'm going to go all the way to chapter 5. We're almost to our, our chapter but in chapter 5, some of those glorious verses, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer am I afraid of, of God. In fact, what we're going to find by the time we get to chapter 8, that judge, that, that, that God who would have condemned me, now adopts me. He becomes my father. I've got peace, settled peace with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And then verse 6 of Romans 5, while we were still helpless, right? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Like, that, that's me. I, I'm just ungodly. I'm helpless. But Christ stepped in. Rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, maybe someone might even care to die. But God provides his own love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ dies for us. This is crazy good news. He's not waiting for me to like earn it. Not waiting for me to get my act, you know, together and to get cleaned up. Then he'll step in. No, no, no. As we stand there, as pitiful as possible and helpless as possible, he steps in. And what's crazy, he ends this chapter by letting us know you can never out God's ability to forgive. Like at the end of verse 20, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Guys, 
that, that truth where sin multiplied, grace multiplies even more, it's, there's nobody in this room that can say, well, maybe that's true for some people. You don't know how bad I am. You, you don't know the wickedness. You don't know my thoughts. You don't know my actions. You don't know, that's not for me. No, Paul ends this thing by saying, everybody can get in on this. You can't outpace God's grace. No amount of sin kind of, oh, too much. I can't do that one. That one, that one costs too much. No, he's saying grace multiplies to, to overwhelm whatever level of sin you bring to the table. You, you have not outrun God's ability to love you and forgive you and overgrace whatever sin you have. Now, that last point of chapter 5 actually sets up the tension that he's going to be walking us through and answering in chapter 6. What, what's the tension there? What's the question? Here it is. This is a very legit question. If God is committed to forgive me, okay, no matter what, then maybe what I should do is just relax and actually even sin boldly. Because, right, if I know I can't overspend God's forgiveness, why not just rack up a bunch of sins, right? Like, if, if chapter 5 is true, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, actually, I'm going to go even further than that. If I really want a ton of grace, I know how to get that. Just sin boldly. Because every time I raise the level of sin, he raises the level of grace. So it kind of makes sense, man. I'm just going to do whatever I want because he's just going to keep forgiving me. Now, that might sound kind of ridiculous, but I'm saying, guys, we, we actually function this way sometimes. Like, that's his job. He does that, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. I want to sin. So when, when uh, I was in uh, college, you know, like 100 years ago, there were colleges, and uh, I remember when, when I was in college, there was one dorm on campus. Uh, we called it <laughs> the Daddy Loves Me college or dorm because it had a few more amenities. I think they had like electricity and running water, indoor plumbing. No, I, I don't remember what it was, but for whatever reason, like it costs more to be in there. And so we used to call it, you know, the daddy loves me. So it was almost like, <laughs> that's where they go. I, I belong over in Ryder Hall, whatever, you know. So here's what I want you. I want you to just imagine the daddy loves me credit card. Okay. If you're 18 years old, going to college and you got one of those daddies that gives you a credit card and it doesn't matter how much you spend or what you spend it on, daddy's just going to pay it off every single week, right? Every month. Well, what would the average 18-year-old do with that kind of freedom? What would I have done? You know, I'm kind of glad, well, one, I don't think we could even have credit cards, but even if we didn't, even if my parents could afford one, I, I'm telling you, but if I could have had one of those, who knows the kind of levels I would have gone to, right? I can't outspend this thing done. You know, I'm going to try my hardest. You know, here's what I'm saying. There are Christians that imagine sin in that same kind of way, right? Well, if God has just positioned himself to just keep gracing everything I do, sweet, I'm going to run up the account. Does that make sense? Like, we live this way. I'm just going to keep going. Romans 6 steps in with that basic idea. So look at the first, and I I, I want to apologize. I don't have the first couple of verses that'll be on the screens. They're in your Bible for sure, and the rest of them will be on here. But the very first verse of Romans 6 anticipates that kind of response on behalf of all of us. And he says this, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? 
So should we just keep sinning because we know grace will multiply to kind of meet that, right? And he answers his own question, verse 2, absolutely not. If you got some of you guys have a King James version, that's even better. God forbid. That's what it says in the King James. Absolutely not. What? It's like he's pulling his hair out. What? No, 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 no. You have misunderstood what I'm saying in Romans 5. If that's your conclusion, that I should just keep sinning so that grace may multiply, absolutely not. Hard stop. What are you thinking? And then he gives this reply. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Wait, that's your your reply? No, absolutely not. God forbid. But here it is. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What does that mean? (laughs) We who died to sin. Because as I look around, it just seems like sin is pretty alive. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I'm not just talking about out there, you know, or out there. I'm talking about in here. So what does it mean when Paul says, no, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, here's what I'm saying. That's what Romans 6 is all about. I hope that Paul has piqued your interest to have him unpack what he means by that, by that phrase. And I especially want to say this. If you are either someone this morning, as you guys, you know, look up at me and you don't have to say it out loud, but if you're, if you're one that says, man, I'm really tired because I've got this sin or these couple sins that just plague me. They just chase me down. I can't seem to outrun this, this sin. If that's you, I want you especially leaning in this morning, especially because there's really good news for you this morning. But maybe you're even one that goes even further and is like, oh, I'm not even running anymore. I'm just giving into it. Because you know what? I can do whatever I want. God's going to forgive me anyway. If that's your attitude then I want you leading in also because I believe God's got some powerful good news for you as well. God really wants to free you this morning. Okay, so the very first thing he's going to do to get us to lock in to answer that question, how can we who died to sin live any longer in it? First thing he's going to tell you to do, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Look what he says starting in verse 3. First couple of verses here, 3 and 4. Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Now guys, um, I got to point out quick here that Paul is assuming that every Christian that he's writing to has been baptized, right? I mean, that he's assumed, he, he's never been to Rome. He's been to Corinth, he's been to Ephesus, he's been to a lot of these other places that, that he is writing letters to. The church in Rome, he hasn't yet been there. But he's just under this assumption, oh, if you're a Christian and you're in the Christian church and you're getting this letter, oh, then you've been baptized. So let me tell you about your baptism. Well, guys, here's the thing. The reason that he can make that assumption is because in the first century, there was no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. Right? We're going through the book of Acts right now. A couple of guys and I were reading through the Bible. In the book of Acts, what is the most natural thing that happens after someone gives their life to Christ, believes in Jesus Christ? What's the very next thing they do in the book of Acts? They get baptized, right? Every single time. Like it's this unbroken pattern. I believe in Jesus. Oh, it's time to get baptized. There's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. It didn't make them Christian, but it is say every Christian got baptized. Now, understand, baptism is not like 
This is where we get so confused and hold people back. Baptism isn't some kind of like graduation. Like, yeah, I believe, but I haven't learned enough. I got, I got to be in this a while. I got to take a few more classes, whatever. Then I'll get baptized. No, no, no. Baptism isn't a graduation after you've gotten to a certain point in your Christian life. Nor is it some kind of promise like, yeah, I believe that stuff, but you know what? I, man, now I really believe. Now, I, so now I'm going to get baptized to really, man, I'm, I'm serious this time. I, I really am. No, no, no. That's not what baptism is, you guys. Baptism is a declaration of your unworthiness. Baptism is a declaration of your desperation. Back in chapter 5, he used the word helpless. It is a declaration of your helplessness. It is a declaration to say, it's only Jesus that can save me. (laughs) It's not because I'm going to learn enough or get my life cleaned up or get really serious and make a bigger promise this time. No, no, no. No. Your only hope, you are helpless on your own. You need Jesus Christ. And when you get baptized, you're answering a couple fundamental questions. You guys, this is not to be patronizing. I'm saying he's, he's asking us to go back to the very fundamental ideas of what it means to be a Christian and get baptized, right? The first thing I want you to ask yourself is, why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did Jesus die on the cross? For your sins, right? For my sins. That's, this is rudimentary. This is like basic stuff. And he's like, yeah, remember your baptism, okay? You know that Jesus died on the cross. Why? Because you sinned. When I am baptized, guys, I'm reminded in a very stark, very physical, tangible way that actually I'm only pretending to die when I go under the water and only pretending to raise again. I'm actually, it's like a reenactment, right? You know, those reenactments like, I don't know, uh, Revolutionary War reenactments, you know, I mean, they don't have real bullets. Nobody's actually dying. They're doing a reenactment of something that brought us freedom, right? What I'm saying is when we get baptized, we're doing a reenactment. And it's beautiful because we know, oh man, I actually don't have to die because Jesus died. And when I go under the water and come back up, I'm just play acting in a way, right? Because Jesus is actually the one that took on death. And I, man, this is painless. I just go underwater and come. It's a little embarrassing. I get, you know, wet in front of everybody. But it's pretty painless. I'm just, I'm just reenacting what Jesus has done for me. My sin was crucified with Jesus Christ. I don't have to die because Jesus died for me, right? I'm baptized into his death. That's what it says in verse 3. Baptized into his death. Okay, sec- second kind of fundamental question that all of us that just know Jesus understand this. Of. What happened after Jesus died on the cross? He rose again, right? He rose again. Like we, we know this stuff. That's why, that's why he's having us go back and rehearse this. He rose again. The burden of my sin didn't weigh him down for very long at all, right? He, like, he, he rose again and more alive than ever before. And in the same way, here's, here's Paul's argument in these couple of verses. In the same way, think about what baptism means. In the same way, when I come up out of that water, Jesus allows me to do what he says here. Walk in newness of life. The way Jesus came out of the grave and had, he shed all the, the sin back in the grave. He's like, I'm free. He, all, all of our sin. Now he's saying, yeah, and you too can walk in newness of life. The idea of walk in the New Testament, it means like this daily life. As I walk, I can live a whole new life on a whole new path. can walk with Jesus. There's another couple of verses in Ephesians that make this point so beautifully. Ephesians says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened 
so that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Look what he's saying. Here's my prayer. Look, it's already true. (laughs) Jesus already has done that. I want you to be aware of it. I want your eyes and your heart to be enlightened to know the kind of greatness that is at your fingertips. The unbelievable power and strength that is at your fingertips because of what Jesus has done for you and just rehearsing what even baptism means starts unleashing, oh, wait, I can walk a whole new way of life. I get up out of that water and it's like, man, I step out and I'm like, oh, I'm not going back. I've got a whole new path. I've got a whole new destiny. So, I mean, number one, if you've not been baptized and, and you're a Christian, you've given your, your life to Christ, we got another one coming up middle of August, August 14th. Please, 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 don't wait. What are you waiting for? We're not going to graduate you. You're not going to pass a test. Do you believe what Jesus Christ has done for you? Get baptized. Just show yourself to be helpless. And in fact, even confess, you know what? I'm even more lame because even after I believed it, I still didn't get baptized. But here I am, lunkhead that I am, I'm getting baptized. Just swallow it and just align yourself with what Jesus has done. Okay, secondly then, I want to read verses 5 through 11, because now he's going to say, okay, you remember that baptism? Tell yourself the truths over and over. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know, I love this, we know this stuff. He's going to say it over and over. We know our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know this, like I circled that, we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. Look, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then this verse, this is so important. I've got like three exclamation points out by this one. Verse 11. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to know right off, Paul is not saying that you'll never sin again. He's not saying that. In fact, he's saved that question for chapter 7, because when we get to chapter 7, he'll talk about that a lot more. What he is talking about is these habitual sins that we feel like we can never get out of. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. He's talking about those, those plaguing, tyrannizing sins that you just seem to have a stranglehold over your life. He goes, oh no, you don't have to live like that, right? You don't, you don't have to live as if sin has enslaved you and you can't get out. But here's the really intriguing thing about this, guys. Um, the very first imperative in this whole book of Romans occurs halfway through chapter 6. By imperative, that means a command, right? Like we, we think of the Bible as all these commands, all these obligations, you know. No, I'm telling you, he's been giving the gospel, and six and a half chapters, in, five and a half chapters into the Bible of the book of Romans, he's not given us one imperative, And we find it here. You know where it is? All the way down in verse 11. Here it is. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin. (laughs) The first hardcore imperative, the first command coming out of Paul is think differently. (laughs) Right? Isn't that crazy? We are commanded to ponder 
Here's the command. Here's that hard-hitting command. Ponder what Christ has done for you. Reflect on it. Study it. Absorb the things that God has done for you in Christ. And then I'll give you one more little geek out in Greek language. It's in the present tense. You know what I mean by the, the present tense means do this all the time. Just keep it going, right? You've got to think about these things, ponder these things, meditate on these things, keep letting these things absorb, and then you are so quick to forget again. Tell yourself over and over and over and over and over. Just keep absorbing. Keep thinking about what Christ has done for you. There's another verse that that Paul wrote in the book of Galatians, I think, nails this equally well. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. It's Christ that's living in me. The life I now live in the body, man, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we just found that verse, like, repeat it over and over, like rinse and repeat every day, throughout the day, keep saying this kind of thing, I'm telling you, that's where the power is. Memorize the whole chapter of Romans 6. Memorize just one verse, Galatians 2.20. What I'm saying is we have to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Guys, the battle for your new life, this new journey, it is not going to be by exerting a whole lot of will, a whole lot of force. The battle is in your mind. The battle is in your heart. What do you believe? What do you trust? What's going on in your head? It's not exertion, strength, perseverance, tenacity. We've got to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's when we get to, we won't get there in this series, but chapter 12 starts off that. You've got to be renewed in your mind, transformed in your mind, and that's what's going to unleash the power. So these couple of guys I'm reading through the Bible with, I was on a text thread with him about Romans 6. I'm like, man, you guys, I feel like all the best I can do with Romans 6 is like just ignite, you know, the, just start the little fuse and just let it explode on people. Like, like there's more power than I can unleash. It's just in there, you know. And one of the guys, Johnny, said this. Yeah, he goes, my battle is not a power struggle. It's a truth encounter. And I was like, say that again. Like I like literally like copied and pasted it into my notes. Like my battle is not a power struggle. It's not going to grimace my way through, you know, this sin battle. No, it's a truth encounter. What do I believe? Do I believe what Jesus has done or do I believe that somehow I can do it? No, no, no. I've got to believe all in Jesus. Guys, you've spent so long under the power of sin that you think it has the power to enslave you. And it doesn't. That's is that just the greatest news? You don't have to live under the tyranny of sin. And here's the way I know it to be true, not only because I've read it, because I've, but I've experienced this. So back when I was first a believer, I had you know, a boatload of sins, big, big, bold, ugly sins. A lot of those dropped off pretty quickly, the drunkenness, the womanizing stuff kind of dropped off, well, not quickly, relatively quickly. Jesus had a long way to go to renew my mind. But, but I was getting there, making a lot of ground. But there was one thing that just plagued me. And it was my anger, my rage. And I, I've talked to some of you guys about this. But a few years into my journey of, of faith in Christ, I was still tyrannized by this rage. I just had this rage. And I'm working for UPS at this point, And um, I would get to the point where, man, I'm just getting buried, and I'm just, you know, and I, I just feel it just boiling up, and all of a sudden, just wham, and I'd like hit a wall or whatever, like, 
ah, oh, well, that helped. Now I can't even lift the boxes that are coming at me. You know, like just the most ridiculous, just venting, just full vent of rage. And a buddy of mine, Pat Nemers, he's now a pastor too, a bunch of potheads from Cedar Falls, all of a sudden both pastors. It's crazy. Anyway, Pat is the one uh, also working for UPS at the time. He's like, dude, you should memorize Romans 6. It's not, you shouldn't do that. It was, you should memorize Romans 6. I, start, I memorized Romans 6. And after that point, you guys, here's what would happen. Every time I would start feeling that same like sin, one, like crouching at the door, ready to take over, I'd just start rehearsing back. I'd just start memorizing Romans 6, saying it out loud. And all of a sudden, I'm like, dude, I actually don't have to say yes to rage anymore. I can actually stop this right now. It was like a magic wand. It's like a magic pill. I'm telling you guys, God's supernatural power, not my, I tried everything, right? And caved and gave in over and over. Now all of a sudden, God's power was able to change my actions, that tyranny of sin, no longer there, right? So you guys have to personify. This is what Paul is telling us to do. It's like you have to look at those temptations and say, you know what, Rage? You used to tyrannize my life. (laughs) I gave in to you over and over. And you know what, Rage? You made a fool of me. And then as soon as you made a fool of me, you'd cackle and laugh at me and let me just stand alone in my guilt and shame and ridiculousness. But you know what? You don't own me anymore, Rage. You don't own me anymore. In fact, I've got a new owner. His name's Jesus, and he's really good. He doesn't make me do bad stuff. He draws me onto a whole new path, and you know, I'm on a new path. I'm not giving in to you, Rage, anymore, right? It gives you such power to be able to look at whatever those sins are that you think you have no power to. No, you don't, but Jesus does, and he's willing to unleash it for you, right? All right, look at the way that he wraps this up. It's so beautiful. Verse 12, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. See, so you obey its desires. <laughs> his, his last point is, stop doing that. <laughs> stop sinning, right? And then he goes further, just in case we didn't get it. Verse 13, and don't offer any parts of your body to the sin as weapons for unrighteousness. No, as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Sin will not rule over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. Stop doing that. Stop giving in. That's the other thing, you know what I mean? Stop sinning. Don't, you don't have to anymore. Again, not that you won't have individual sins, but I'm saying this idea that we just give in to the same one over and over and over in this habitual way. No, stop, stop. And more, do right. Like after doing all that bad stuff habitually over and over, train yourself to do good stuff. Actually use every part of your body, your mind, your body, your heart, every part that you used to have trained to give in to evil. Use all that, every single part of you to serve Christ. And you know what? You can. Not because you've got so much self-exertion, but because Jesus Christ has this crazy power to ready unleash on you if you would just think differently about it. Believe what he can do. Okay, I've got this illustration, but I've got to ask, how many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? Please, raise your hand. Wizard of Oz? Bunch? Okay, good. Thank you. It's a little worried. First person I asked this morning, no, I've never seen it. I'm like, oh, shoot. Anyway, for those of you who haven't seen it, you've got to see it. It's a classic. Okay, so anyway, here's what, here's what happens at the end. Here I am. You haven't seen it? Let me tell you the end. Anyway, spoiler. 
So at the end, you remember the, the bucket of water goes on the wicked witch, you know, I'm melting, I'm melting. Here she goes down, you know, the, the bad, the ruler, the bad ruler goes down. But you remember all of a sudden now Dorothy's standing with all her henchmen. Remember those big green guys? Not the monkeys. They'll freak you out. So not the monkeys, those big green guys with the big furry hats and everything, you know, almost like weird. Uh, all of a sudden Dorothy's like, oh, I, I didn't mean to, you know, kind of a thing, you know. Remember what, okay, by the way, do you know what those big, scary green dudes are called? Winkies. I had to look this up. Winkies. What? Anyway, they're called winkies, these big, weird, green winkies. Here's what they do immediately. Remember this scene? They say, you did it. You've killed her. Hail Dorothy. The wicked witch is dead. You know, remember? So they're standing there with these big swords, and all of a sudden they look bad. They take a knee in front of Dorothy, and they're like, we'll serve you now, right? It wasn't, oh, you've killed this evil tyrant. Oh, sweet. I'm just, I'm going to walk it. No, they're like, I want to follow you. Like, the good girl, the one who's got good Midwest, you know, morals, whatever, you know, good Dorothy. Like, I don't want to follow that. I was just tyrannized by her. That's the reason I was doing bad things. I'm following you now. They, like, commit themselves, right? Here's what I'm saying. In some ways, I think whoever wrote, we could which, you know, whatever, Wizard of Oz, is capturing this, right? Look, it's not just that I say no to sin. I'm saying yes to righteousness. It's that I'm not, not only am I not enslaved to wickedness, I can start a whole new path. I can start doing good. I can actually start doing the kinds of things that God wants me to do because his power is suddenly infusing me with those desires and that power and strength. Guys, Here's what I'm asking you to do, okay, as we start this journey through these chapters. Don't make this real vague, real abstract, super spiritual. This should hit home. You should live differently because this is true, right? Are you hearing me? This is not just something to put on your refrigerator and look at. You can change the way you talk. You can change the way you act. You can change the way you think. I'm telling you, this power is like insurmountable if you will dare to unleash it, if you will dare to believe, if you will dare to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And don't just stop serving sin. Serve Jesus because he wants to lead you on paths of righteousness and it's a glorious path. He's not going to sit back and mock you the way that sin would after you'd cave to him. No, no, no. He's going to be there to join you and cheer you on. So guys, if you're either in one of those camps, like, frustrated because you've been just plagued with a sin, I've got really good news. Stop. Jesus wants to give you the power right now. Just stop. And if you're one who's actually like, oh, no, I've been gladly giving in. Here's what I'm saying then you might not be a Christian. Like if you, if, if you find that you don't have, then I'm saying come to Jesus because Jesus wants you to know, oh no, I've got a whole new path. I don't want you just giving in to sin. I want to show you the way of life that is truly life. He's inviting you, begging you, who you've not gotten to the point where you have outsinned your ability for Jesus to say, oh man, I know exactly what to do with that. Welcome to a new way of life. Wow, that's something to celebrate, right? All right, let's, let's stand together. I'd love to pray for us. 
we're going to worship just using a song that is so perfectly well chosen of just declaring, I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer a slave. I'm a child of God, and we're going to do that, but let's pray. Jesus, uh, Jesus, you, you heard me say it, and I believe that it's true. I'm basically lighting the fuse. The power of this text goes way beyond my ability to kind of do anything more than just hand it out to all these dear people right here, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you, as only you can do, take these truths and just explode them into every soul here today. Take these truths and just absolutely annihilate us. And then show us, wow, we've got a whole new way to live. (laughs) We're more alive now than we've ever been before. Because all of a sudden the gospel is just powerfully transforming us. Oh, Jesus, you've done that for me. You've done that for countless others in this room. Keep doing that. And God, anytime we stop rehearsing this stuff, anytime we get tired of telling ourselves the same truth, just bring these things back to mind again and again and again. May we never, ever get tired of thinking about what you've done for us. Jesus, we love you. We marvel at your grace. Change us. Change us by your power.